There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away, and they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. You can buy a dream. Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And um, I'm, I'm still a little delayed in getting um, back into the final volume of the uh, Civil War series, so I just figured I'd uh, kind of steam my way through the rest of, of it over, I think, over the next week. So I'll probably get all, all these episodes uh, recorded pretty soon, and that'll free me up to, to focus on... on uh, on the, the Civil War, which will take a, then a few weeks past that um, before we get to Mark Twain. So that's what's uh, coming ahead in this podcast, if you are if you are interested. Um, so this episode, we'll be looking at chapters 17, 18, and the fourth Dairy Interlude. So this, we'll look at kind of three chapters, which will bring us right to part five, um, the ritual of Chud, the... the um, climax and in this way these chapters two are part of the climax uh of the of the story it's i think this last 300 pages or so kind of together make the climax especially the bullseye chapter chapter 18. um so in chapter 17 it's called another one of the missing the death of patrick hockstetter and if uh you have forgotten one of the earlier chapters in the book was called one of the missing uh and that's about the death of eddie corcoran and his brother Dorsey Corcoran, and then we we witness Mike's first encounter with it as a as a bird. Remember at the at the Kitchener Ironworks ruins. So this uh, this chapter is dealing with one particular missing boy, Patrick Hockstetter, Stetter, Hockstetter, and this is a very very interesting character, um, one of the more memorable characters in the in the novel. And he has one of the more memorable deaths and, and quite a lot of backstory built up around him. He's, he's sort of one of the, he's kind of with the group of the bullies, but I guess he's not social enough or interested enough in bullying to really be fully part of that circle. He's kind of adjacent to, to, to Henry Bowers and his gang of people. And in fact, we don't really hear about him till the second half of the novel and then only, only mentioned from time to time. So anyways, uh, Patrick Hockstetter is basically a serial killer, uh, young or someone who would grow up to be a serial killer. Uh, this is, I'm not, I don't think this is quite an archetype that King had explored up to this point in this much detail. He's showed young men become mass murderers, like uh, a pupil. Um, and he certainly had serial killers in previous works, like uh, in The Dead Zone. But this kind of uh, close look into the into the mind of a serial killer or someone who would grow up to be one is something I think new. Um, you certainly can tell that is, you know, King very much likes to get into the kid's head in this book, but he gets into the head of a whole mixture of, of children. And this is uh, the most bizarre, right? So like Bowers is being corrupted by it and his father and who himself is kind of a product of dairy, of course. And then his friends are just sort of being corrupted by Bowers. Um, this is shown in the fact that it's those boys that are killed at the end and Bowers is kept alive. Of course, he's left to take the blame. Um, and then Patrick Hockstetter is um, more of dairy, I suppose. He's uh, possibly a product of dairy, possibly just a someone who in any town would have grown up to be a serial killer. I'm not sure. But I'm fine say, uh, suggesting that he, was, he himself is a product of dairy. Uh, so anyways, let's jump into the chapter a little bit more, uh, into what actually happens here. Now, all the chapters in part four are prefaced with the scene in the, in the library where we see the losers begin to piece together more of the, the, the events of that summer. And they all kind of make a contribution. And as they do, they all sort of remember a bit more of the story. So this way, kind of the, the losers are all, the adult losers are all piecing together the whole story of that summer and that it won't actually be completed till they're in the sewers. It's, it's an ongoing process that that kind of remembering gets aborted uh, by events as we'll see in the next episode. 
So this one is for mostly from Beverly's point of view. And she just uh, begins talking about how she witnessed the death of one of the bullies, uh, Patrick Hockstetter. And again, is he one of the bullies? I don't know. He's he's adjacent to the bullies, right? He's a creep. He doesn't really have a circle of friends on his own. So it's like the bullies are the only people who kind of tolerate this this character. Um, so I think in some ways this chapter is partially an excuse for King to work on a totally psychopathic character uh, and create a particular grisly, gr gruesome and grisly death. I think that's uh, you can tell King had quite a bit of fun with this with this chapter. Um, there's another archetype that we'll see in the next episode, like the abusive father, which of course King had explored quite a lot, especially in The Shining. I sometimes think uh, some sections of that chapter, the watches in the net, uh, is it? Yeah, in the watches of the night, which starts the Ritual of Chud chapter. In fact, it's about half of that whole section of the book. Uh, but part of that is we, you know, about Beverly and her father, and I think in some ways, The Shine is almost the first draft of that scene. Um, there are things that are almost pulled like, like, directly from that um, novel, although adapted for the story. Um, but anyways, another thing this chapter is really about and this is important for the climax of the novel as well, is it's about Beverly becoming sexually aware. Um, it's also about shows the group getting committed to attack it directly. Um, they had kind of gotten on board with confronting him and, and working out a plan, but they still need to be bit pushed to do it. And this is an event that encourages Bill to at least take some leadership to push them to, to attack it directly. So um, after kind of setting up uh, this memory of hers, she, we, we flash back to 1958, Beverly's telling the story, and she's um, stuck at this like junkyard, uh, which is somewhat near the Barrens. And, and we see here that the, that the bullies are still sort of keeping their, their distance from the Barrens. And I think there's some back and forth about how the Barrens are still sort of off limits to the bullies after that rock fight. But they're, they're playing essentially in this in this junkyard and Beverly's watching Bowers and his gang light their farts. Although she's not, that's from far away. So she's not quite sure what she's doing. She sees that their pants are down. She seems, you know, that they're acting strange. She doesn't really, she has a concept of the male anatomy, but she doesn't have like an experience of it directly. So she's kind of connecting what she's learned about the male anatomy to what she's seen. And that's all interesting. And, and yeah, it's a little, you know, it's a little weird to read uh, sometimes, but it's all about Beverly becoming mature, right? Because uh, in some ways, she's the most adult. As the woman, she's the one who experiences sexualization earliest. Some of the other boys are interested in a little bit, I would say. Ben, obviously, in a, in a romantic sense, is interested in Beverly. Richie is probably the most interested in girls, you know, the way boys are interested in girls. Um, and, but Beverly is the one who actually encounters sexuality, especially through the way her father creeps on her. So she, you know, just as being a woman, she's has to learn earlier about what men are about, what sex is. Um, also they experience puberty in very different ways. Right. And of course, Bev's experience with it is about blood. And I think that's carried on here. I, and I think that's a theme that people are not the most comfortable talking about because we all know how the novel ends. And if you don't, spoiler alert, there's that uh, um, group sex act in the sewers uh, towards the end of the novel. And it, it's even, King's even said like he'd write that out if he could now. But, like, you know, and King has like censored, self-censored his own books before like Rage. So he's capable of doing that, but he hasn't. And I think one reason it really can't fully be done is there is this theme of sexual maturation, it being uh, like somehow connected to growing up and in that that crossing that border. I mean, the story overall is kind of about crossing that border from childhood to adulthood and what that means in terms of imagination and magic. But, uh, but sexuality is something that grounds us in adulthood. And as, I, as I'm trying to suggest here, Beverly gets there first 
because she's a girl. I mean, it's not necessarily she's the most physically mature, although that you might be able to make a case for that too. But she's she has to be because that's how men see her. And when she sees the threats to the bullies, there's that element of it. When she feels threats from her father, there's that sexual element. Something that the that the other boys don't feel. Eddie a little bit because you do have that that um, the, the the hobo and the leper and that kind of stuff doing you know making sexual advances towards him but it's a very different type of thing is you know when you look at what beverly's facing so anyways they're lighting their farts and beverly's hiding from them and there's a really tense scene where she's trying to stay out of their line of sight not be seen by them uh hoping they would leave um you know but at the same time giggling and laughing as she sees like their different bodies and the different size of their stuff and some are hairier than others and of course this is another aspect of growing up is you know different members of your peer group will mature faster or not and that seems to be one thing she's witnessing as well and she's kind of laughing and giggling about that and thinking about bill all the time you know that she can come back to like bill has that what's his look like you know um but she's kind of horrified and creeped out by what that is but there is a but she can't quite pull herself away because she's afraid, but also kind of fascinated. It's a good scene. I think it's well done. Now, um, the rest of the Bowers gang, you know, Victor Chris and uh, Bell Tuggins, the other ones there, leave after they have a little bit of fun with lighting their farts. And they leave specifically to do different like summer jobs or study or i think it's i think it's summer work that they have to do um summer jobs for their family or or i think one of them's working somewhere the details don't really matter but they leave and eventually um henry and patrick hockstetter are left alone and and then basically patrick sort of well basically he, he tries to rape henry bowers and he does it first by by sort of a they start touching each other which is you know, a bit of sexual exploration that I, that I, that I also think young people do with each other uh, to various degrees, um, or at least many do anyways. I don't think this is such a bizarre experience. Uh, it's again, it's one of those things that as adults is kind of a little awkward to talk about or think about, but, and read about, but I think King's trying to be honest um, about this stuff. Um, but the thing about Patrick is he's a psychopath. He, as we, as we learn later on, he doesn't even believe that other people exist, um, which is kind of horrifying. And he's seen Henry as just a tool of his sexual gratification. And he, he kind of offers to give him a blowjob, which is, of course, what the leper offers to give eddie so maybe there's a role of it here but i'm not sure i think patrick is a homegrown uh or or organic psychopath um but henry does get aroused by this but eventually he's offended and he he flips out and calls patrick a homosexual of course using a pejorative terms and leaves the scene uh and then we are exposed to patrick's backstory um, and it doesn't take very long, but we get into it. And basically it's all the signs of a serial killer, um, like the killing of animals, the harming of animals. He starts out by like killing bugs and stuff. And of course, everyone thinks he's a freak and a weirdo for that. But we also learn how he killed his brother, um, his, his infant brother. And that got just blamed on SIDS. Now that's actually something we've seen before in King's work, specifically in, uh, uh, well, the use of like crib death um, being an excuse for for murder. And that's uh, what's the story? The boogeyman, right? That's in Night Shift. But after Patrick kills his brother, he moves on to other animals and things. Now, we also interestingly get kind of a king trying to get in a window into the psychopathic mind. And Patrick's thing, particularly as he's basically a solipsist he thinks he's the only one that exists in the universe um, so everything is potentially a tool for his curiosity his exploration or his uh you know his 
his gratification or whatever. And that might be common to serial killers. I'm not an expert on that. And frankly, I'm not sure King is either. But it is a horrifying archetype for a serial killer. Someone who really is totally incapable. Obviously, they're incapable of empathy to a degree. But to not even think other people really exist. That they're almost like toys or avatars in a video game or something but we get a really deep dive into patrick's mind we also uh we also see how he finds this like refrigerator in the in this junkyard and you know i think even at that time they're already taking the, the doors off the refrigerators and the dump so people don't get trapped in them but and i don't know what the current safety precautions are on refrigerators or whatever but um this one had its lid and so patrick started using that just to dump animals now henry knows about this he actually at one point threatens patrick to expose what you know about his refrigerator but uh but patrick doesn't really care because he's a psychopath and never is going to care what other people think because he doesn't think they really exist but what he does is he throws animals into this refrigerator and basically studies how long it takes them to die. And I think there was a case of a dog or something that, or a cat that took a f like, like over a day to die in there. Others die more quickly, but he's just, that's how he's using it. Um, and so that's more or less the story of Petra Cockstetter. And it's super, super memorable. Um, and it's like, why wasn't that adapted? This is such a good scene. This, this, and there's two scenes towards the end of the book that, I, I mean, besides the ritual of Chud, that I just can't believe filmmakers didn't want to film. I understand not doing the fart thing or the mutual masturbation scene that takes place here, but the, I mean, the 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 character of Patrick Hoxeter being a true, like, solipsistic psychopath. It's so good. I mean, it's so well done here. And when we get his backstory, it's it's really horrifying. It's like a horror in this in this town that's not connected directly to it. And and maybe we want to don't blame it for this to some degree, but I don't really want to because I think I want that to be just another part of of evil in the world, just an example of pure evil. And it's it's not comparable to it, I suppose. It kills Patrick without much thought it's just opportunistically it seems it's like oh uh, the other boys left and now i can kill this boy so as as much as patrick thinks he's the center of the universe he, he's being told that he's not um and that itself might end up being a a metaphor for its downfall too its arrogance and its, its belief that it is uh the only thing that matters right the the turtle's dead. One thing he says later on in the book. One, uh, one thing it says to the, I think to the, to the losers in the ritual of Chud in the in the eighty five timeline. We'll get to that later. But the gruesome scene where Patrick Coxeter killed is just wonderful. Here, it's like really Lovecraftian, where these out of the refrigerator these leeches come out with these probuses, and they just start attaching itself to Patrick. It's something that Patrick had a fear of from an earlier age, and that's explained too. But these are like flying leeches with the the suckers and the like the the proboscises, right? The the things that stick into your um skin like a mosquito. And they kill him kill Patrick, you know. It's just it's just the avatar that it takes to kill Patrick. But it's pretty gruesome and uh, we get this kind of these last thoughts of Patrick who's like baffled at this experience and baffled at the pain and baffled at, or maybe it was painless here, but baffled at that he's dying because he thinks, how can I die when I'm the only thing that really exists in the universe? So bravo, all really well done. And anyways, Beverly sees all this. And I think some of those creatures actually try to attack Beverly too and she's able to get away. Suddenly there's a kind of another opportunistic attack effort by it to break up the losers but it's it's not fully realized so um so after that uh beverly runs back to the rest of the losers in the clubhouse or whatever and takes them back to show them the refrigerator 
And in the refrigerator, um, Pennywise, it in the Pennywise avatar, sort of leaves a warning for them. So in some sense, maybe the killing of Patrick Hockstetter was partially um, done as an effort to draw them to the refrigerator where this warning would be left um, for them. And it just says, stop now before I kill you a word to the wise from your friend Pennywise. So that's on the inside of the, of the re refrigerator. And Bill responds to this by yelling out loud that we're going to kill you. And he begs and he's it's like really horrid. It's kind of hard to read, you know, read because he's like stuttering. He can't get his words out, but he's begging the, his friends to support him in, in their, in his effort to actually seek out and kind of go on the offensive against, against it. So all in all, a really great chapter. Uh, and I think there's a lot of things going on in here. For instance, um, you know, why does it destroy Patrick? I think there's different ways of reading this. One is it, it does seem to be setting up the warning for the other losers. Um, another thing, he's not useful for it, uh, the way Henry Bowers is, because Henry Bowers has all these other anxieties and concerns about his father, about his, his hatred for different members of the losers based on prejudice. His, he's all full of anxieties that can be exploited. It doesn't seem Patrick Hockstetter is that useful for it. So he's almost like a separate demon in the town. Um, and he's being taken out, not necessarily because he's a competitor, just because he's, um, just because Patrick is, is not that useful for him, I guess. That's, I also think there's a bit of opportunism here because um, it goes after him when, he, when he's alone. Um, so I think that's a very interesting question in this chapter. Uh, we also get here, and maybe this is the thematically a stronger point in this chapter, and that is Beverly's growing sexual awareness. Um, it certainly affects how she sees her father in future chapters. And, and as I tried to explain before, she's has to come to terms with sex earlier because of, of her relationship with her father. And, uh, but at the same time, she is gaining this sexual interest in Bill. Um, and, you know, maybe that's a, and she thinks about the other losers, the men that she's hanging out with, right? And as we're going to see in the, uh, in the watcher, in the watches of the night chapter, that is this concern about Beverly's sexual maturation is what basically drives her father mad. Um, so it affects how she sees her father. It, uh, it affects how her father sees her and it, and to a lesser degree, it affects how the other losers interact with Beverly. Um, and then finally is just how the death of Patrick helps mobilize the losers to attack it directly. One is, um, the risk that Beverly was put in, in this scene, I think maybe awakened bill to realize that they can never all be together all the time they'll never be safe uh, as long as it is still there and so they're gonna have to move against it um so yeah a lot of good stuff in this chapter i think but uh also also one that's a little bit harder to talk about than some of the others all right uh then we get to chapter 18, um, the bullseye. So finally now we get uh, the story of Ben's silver slugs. This was first, the seeds of this story were first planted all the way back in uh, the Ben section of chapter three, six phone calls. Because if you remember, he goes to the bar and he talks to the bartender and he tells them about the silver coins he has got from his father and now he doesn't have all of them because he did something with one of them and he doesn't quite know what that is um and then he leaves them behind so he doesn't take them to dairy as an adult and that's uh significant he's been he's leaving behind a weapon um that was proven to be effective but whether it would have been effective against it as adults it's not clear but we also see ben thinking on the silver slugs in almost every chapter from his point of view throughout like the when he's an adult and he's in the library he's thinking about the silver slugs 
it is mentioned quite a lot. So it's uh, we finally get the payoff for that. Um, so um, so basically, this chapter just opens uh, back in the library as adults, and it's just Richie. Okay, finish the story. Tell us about the silver slugs. It's it's kind of they get right to it. King doesn't waste too much of our time messing around with uh, uh, the events of eighty five. He he goes straight to um, to the story of the silver slugs. And so basically, what happens is the the losers research how to make silver bullets. Um, and then they realize they can't really do that, so they settle on the silver slugs. And eventually they do that at Bill's father's workshop. Now, this all rests on the belief that you kill a creature, a monster, like a werewolf with silver bullets. We all know that, right? That's something every kid knows. They learned it from movies, and they had some belief of that. Um, and I think they've also sort of realized that it's vulnerable. It is vulnerable to to what people believe can kill it. Uh, now, it makes this clear to us later on that this is actually what works against it. Uh, it's, a, it's a weakness it has. But anyways, they do this research. They look into the silver um, slugs. And then they work at Bill's father's workbench to actually make them. And they go through the process. And Ben kind of leads them in this process. Ben being the, the craftsman of the group. The one who's, uh, you know, eventually going to work in industry while well, in, in architecture anyways. Um, and then they arrange their quest. And, and this chapter doesn't waste that much time getting us there. It just, it, it sets up the making the slugs. I, I think they, they, I don't know if it's here. Maybe it was an earlier chapter. I think it's here maybe where they talk about who's going to have the slingshot. Who's going to fire it. And they all you know, take their efforts. They all, you know, some are really bad at it. Some are pretty good, but Bev hits almost all of them. I think she's like nine for 10 and one just kind of nicked it. So they're like, you're the one who's going to have to carry it. So Beverly's job is then to, you know, to be the one that actually shoots it with the silver slugs when the time comes. Um, and they go to the place where they know people have encountered it before and that would be the house on Nebold Street because they have Eddie's story and they have Bill and Richie. So three of six, or, yeah, three of them have directly experienced it at the house on Nebold Street. So that's where they they set off for. So anyways, they go to the house and, and this is just a this is a fun chapter. Um, I think thematically there's maybe not that much to um, to say about here, but um, they go into the house and the house takes these highly variable forms inside. It's kind of like a standard haunted house in that way where it looks small on the outside, but the way it's managed looks bigger. But here, of course, it's supernatural. So um, the space inside is several magnitudes larger than the space from the, you know, from the looks of the, the, uh, from the outside. Um, and it does, it's, it's pretty effective here um, in kind of making the house seem kind of creepy um, and then they eventually discover a drain from which it can emerge and and it does it does emerge eventually and attacks them in the form of the teenage werewolf and um, Beverly hits it with the slingshot hurting it um, and then Bever Beverly mit like loses the other silver slug it drops but the children bluff it into thinking they have more ammunition and that's really the amazing moment where they all kind of collectively apply their psychic power to get it to back down, right? Convincing it just through their voices and their will that they have plenty more ammo. And they do this basically by, by pushing, you know, telling Bev to finish the job, to kill it. And it's convinced of that. And this kind of rages out and, you know, threatens to kill them again. And then, you know, retreats and escapes. So it's this scene that shows, really convinces the children of the full realization of the source of their power, which is imagination. Their magic comes from the, their ability to believe and their will. So um, now in the, in the battle, uh, Ben is actually caught pretty severely by, 
by it. And I think this is like a, these wounds appear on Ben as an adult, just like the hand wounds appeared. Um, but it appears and, you know, he almost like lost his guts. Yeah, I think that's that's how Richie puts it at one point. It's almost had his guts for garters or something. So he was almost killed by it at some point. Um, but, but anyways, that's really what the chapter comes down to is this victory against it and the children realizing that together they have this real, this source of power that can challenge it. Um, now this could have been the, the climax, right? This could have been the end of the story. And I think, um, King is wonderful for making this not the final confrontation that there would be more later on, but it would be weeks later. It would take a couple of weeks for it to recover and pl plan and put together its its effort to kill the, the losers once and for all, to kind of harness all, all of its troops, if you will, and all of its powers to do that. But it takes two weeks to put together, so they did seem to seriously hurt it. Um, now, it seems to manipulate the house. I think that's some fun in this chapter, too. Um, I guess the question is, is the house evil independent of it? Of course, it has been in dairy longer than the house, clearly. So it predates that. So um, why is it? Um, you know, every house is connected to the drain, to the sewers in some way. So what's special about the house on Neville Street? Uh, I think on some level, King just needs to have a haunted house in this town. And he's been playing with the archetype of the haunted house in many of his works, particularly Salem's Lot uh, and The Shining. And here he plays with it again. Uh, so he likes the idea of an evil house. And I guess we can, having read King's earlier works, at least I have, uh, if you haven't, I encourage you to do that. Um, but King kind of takes from Shirley Jackson the idea of, of an evil house. Um, so... I think it's fine believing this house is somehow evil independently of it, and it becomes a layer of it for that reason. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it, evil works, though. I mean, what does evil mean in this context? I mean, you're talking about something supernatural, something beyond our conceptions of time and space. This is, of course, Lovecraft's point, right? That we really can't talk about evil in in the same way we can when we're talking about humans or even natural evils um, but anyways the term works i guess we'll just we're just sort of stuck with it we're not getting into philosophy here um but here's a great quote um the power of silver the power of the slugs where does that where does power like that come from where does any power come from how do you get it how do you use it this is the question that's asked um is it by the narrator i think it's by the by one of the characters, but I wrote it down. Um, this, this is the key. This is the answer. It's mental. It is. Uh, it's a force of will. So the slug only had power because they believed it had power, and not only that, the power went existed even in the absence of the slugs themselves. So that's it. I thought I had more to say about the bullseye chapter, but I guess that's it. It is um, a lot about effect and the scene and entering the house it's really really well done obviously um but well anyways let me just say uh let's let me quote one more part of the book uh which is right at the end of this chapter it seems to him that their lives might depend on these questions one night he was falling asleep the this is ben actually this was all ben one night he was falling asleep a, the rain, a steady, lulling patter on the roof and against the windows. It occurred to him that there was another question, perhaps the only question. It had some real shape. Had been nearly, He had nearly seen it. To see that shape was to see the secret. Was that also true power? Perhaps it was. For wasn't it true, that power? Like it was a shape changer? It was a baby crying in the middle of the night. It was an atomic bomb. It was a silver slug. In the way Beverly looked at Bill, and the way Bill looked back, what exactly what, or what exactly what was power anyways? Now, what do these things have in common? He, he compares it, the power, I mean, not it, but he, I mean, he compares this power to it itself. But he says, um, what is this? A baby crying in the middle of the night, an atomic bomb, a silver slug, the way Beverly looked at Bill, and the way Bill looked back. I, mean, I can't think of anything that 
has all of these. Um, I mean, the atomic bomb is a real danger, right? It's not a product of imagination the way the silver slug was, the way love may be, um, the way a baby crying in the middle of the night is. I don't know. I, I don't quite know what King is exactly trying to say here. But it's certainly some. There is a magic here. This power is a magic, and it's something they don't quite know uh, fully how to harness yet. But they're pretty close. They're pretty damn close because they did get near killing it in Ebal Street. Then we're just told in this chapter that nothing much happened for the next two weeks, which is of course going to set up things for the the you know the final confrontation in the middle of August of of. 1958 and simultaneously narratively at least in in may may 1985 so next we have the fifth interlude this is the last interlude that kind of does a deep dive into Derry's history it's not the last interlude chapter we're given one more at the end which is just sort of an epilogue to the book um but anyways the fourth interlude um I like this one a lot. Uh, uh, now, for this part of his history, Mike is drunk. And um, it's kind of, it, I don't know. I know how drunk people speak. Uh, I'm not quite sure how drunk people read or write. Um, but here we have a drunk Mike writing. Uh, I'm pretty sure drunk people don't write the same way they speak. But um, in a sense, if you were to read this out loud, it sounds drunk. If you listen to the audiobook, the, the narrator makes Mike sound drunk here, but anyways, it doesn't matter. Um, he's he's deep into the next the cycle. It's it's April sixth, nineteen eighty five. So still a month or so before, over a month before he call, makes the calls, and he already knows it is back and killing children, and yet he delays, and he justifies why he delays. As he had to make sure, he had to be 100% sure before he interfered with their lives. But obviously fear plays a role in that. But uh, in this drunken passage, this chapter, he goes uh, back to the deeper history of Derry. Not way, way back. He goes back as far as kind of historical records really can take him, which is to the rise of Derry as a logging town. Um, which in its own way is kind of, about the maturation of a society uh, the same way we see the maturation of these characters. It's almost like a sexual violation of pristine nature, right? We've talked about the rape of nature. So um, there is something um, about growing, about dairy growing up in this cycle. Um, and, and I think that's maybe one way we can talk about these cycles is is a maturation of dairy that's we're given that theme too in the grown-up chapters where we see how dairy has grown up from the 50s and with malls and and bypasses and things like that now one thing i do think um king is aware of because he did name his son after joe hill i right when you know joe hill the labor leader at first, I didn't know if that was a coincidence or not, but when I looked it up, apparently King did name his son after the Joe Hill, the songwriter. Um, who was, of course, a radical labor leader in, in American history. Um, killed by the state for a murder he probably did not commit. And has since become a, a working class hero an icon of the, of the labor movement. Now, bear in mind, the United States had uh, one of the most la violent labor histories in the entire world, if not the most violent labor history, where you had guerrilla wars in the coal fields and violent conflicts out west and National Guards being co called in to put down strikes. Super, super violent stuff, like really brutal labor history. And it's, of course, this is b being part of the American story. It's going to be alive and well in Derry. Um, as well, because that's partially what this book does too. Is it's it's a dairy is a foil for, or maybe a foil is the wrong term, but a, an apotheosis of all of the sins of America. Racial is the biggest one we've been getting up to this point. Uh, crime is another. Um, the violence against children, 
that's kind of institutionalized and perpetuated by indifference. And here we have the violence of the labor movement. Um, of course, our villain here is kind of one of the labor leaders, but that's that's fine. It, it's it's okay. Um, now here, Mike is very interesting. Here he's pointing out partially because he's drunk and he's kind of exposing all this that he as a librarian now he's not getting rich but he's certainly benefiting from these crimes he's living in a modern american town he's working in a library that's partially sponsored and helped built up by old wealth money that old wealth being tied to these logging communities so he's that's part of the story now this is not a long chapter it's only 10 12 pages or so but he spends the time making this very clear that I himself and everyone who lives in Derry is kind of an inheritor of these crimes against working people, um, the crimes against nature, the crimes against the indigenous people, which it really isn't talked about, but is kind of in the backdrop of even that. If we were to do another cycle going farther back into Derry's history, I guess the album gets a little bit into that stuff, but very vaguely, um, you know, that's probably back there too. Now, he tells the story of a silver dollar, dollar, which is a logging bar. And of course, we want to think of the Black Spot, uh, which was a bar for the for the soldiers, um, the African-American soldiers in the army base. So there's a, that's kind of tied to American empire. This silver dollar is somewhat tied to the expansion of American capitalism and the logging communities and the, in the, you know, the exploitation of nature that comes out of that, the commodification of nature. Right. Maybe I'm going too far with this, but that's okay. It's it's um, it's at least subtext that I can extract from it. Now, basically, all that really happens here is Claude Harrow, who's a labor leader, massacres the customers of this bar, the Silver Dollar. So it's it certainly seems to parallel the Black Spot, but that was an outsider burning it down. Here, Claude Harrow comes in and just just starts slaughtering them indifferently his motive he seems to have a motive and it seems to be killing the opponents of of or the the enemies of the of the labor union that claude harrow is integral in trying to start up but his actions just seem much more irrational in practice and by this point in the novel there's no there's no secret here that harrow is being motivated by it or by dairy itself to uh to do this to to engage in these crimes now this i think starts out the cycle the the 1906 1905 or 1906 cycle uh, remember there's always like a dramatic event that starts them and, and another one that ends them and maybe it it parallels the the murder of dorsey cochran which seems to have some parallels here with this kind of violent irrational just murder of people you know using hand tools um but anyways it doesn't end there because Hero is later lynched. And of course, lynching is a big part of American history as well. And that mostly targeted African-Americans, but it also targeted uh, white supporters of black rights, white labor leaders, or, you know, anyone who ran afoul of public sentiment and became a target for extrajudicial violence. Um, you know, it took years and years to stop lynching from just being a common adjunct of the of the american justice system um and that's a whole history that we can get into later on but or you could study on your own it's there you can read about this um but so this was not an uncommon experience too so i love how king just kind of exposes all the crimes of american uh, history in this novel Now, of course, witnesses suggest that a clown was at the lynching, and that's, of course, Pennywise. It was at the lynching. I don't think at the, mur at the massacre of the Silver Dollars, later at the lynching, that witnesses uh, suggested that a clown was there. Now, unlike the other interlude chapters where Mike is talking to other people, this is research he, he, he did earlier and is just reporting on. I think he did talk to someone who was a witness there, a really, really super old-timer. But, you know, he, we don't get the back and forth like we do in some of the other interlude chapters. Um, you know, like whether it was the historians or Mike's father or uh, 
um, the Mr. Keen in the case of the the, the shootout with the, with the gang. But anyways, um, but that's it. That's the story. But it's there's a lot, even though it's a very, very short chapter, I think there's a lot to maybe unpack here. Uh, and at least a lot of different ways you can go to think about this chapter and what it's trying to do. Now, at the end of the story, Mike commits to himself to calling the other losers, but we know that it would not be for a month or so that he finally made the calls. So he's still sitting on his hands. Um, and I guess, so what should we say about this? Well, first is, what is King's purpose in his interlude chapters? And I think they all clearly deal with different aspects of America's dark history. Racial violence, mob violence, class struggle, crime. Um, and then we have the other ones that are more intimately related to the children, like sexual violence and child abuse and the indifference to child, the, the not taking children seriously. Um, that's that was the children experience. But the broader story of, of America's history has to be told in other ways. Um, and of course, King wants to connect that all to it here by looking at Derry's history. And I, I think it's the only way you can really do that is with the interlude chapters. So, and I think it's really, really well done. I think, again, I've said that a couple times now, but I think these are some of my favorite parts of the book. I think they really help put the book together. Um, they're not, it's not fat. There's no fat in this book, right? There's almost none. It's almost every word, every, every scene has a role. I mean, even when you think about how long the book is, some of these chapters seem almost rushed. Especially when you compare to some of his other books. Uh, even ones written around the same time. He, it's, it's got a much faster pace. So is there any rational explanation for Claude Hero's actions? Uh, now the town's response of a lynching might be uh, irrational, but we, of course we know about how Derry responded to the gang that went through in the, in the next cycle, in the, in the 30s. So um, the town just gets off on that. They wanted an excuse to kill Claude Harreau for organizing the unions and the massacre provided that. But also, but Claude Harreau's actions himself are not, there's no rationality behind them, really. It doesn't help the union. It doesn't help the cause that he's fighting for. So he seems motivated. He's been possessed by, by it pretty clearly to me. Um, let me think. Anything else? Oh yeah, one last thing. I'm back to this problem of <laughs> is it calling them? Um, does it want them to come or not? I don't, I still am not satisfied with either answer. Mike thinks it is bringing them back. And I guess it wants revenge, right? Here's what he writes. They are being called. I know that much. Each murder in this new cycle has been a call. We almost killed it twice, and in the end, we drove it deep into its worn of tunnels and sneaking rooms beneath, under the city. But I think it knows another secret. Although it may be immortal, or almost so, we are not so. It is only to wait until the act of faith, which made us potential monster killers as well as sources of power, has become impossible. 27 years, perhaps a period of sleep for it, as short and refreshing as an afternoon nap would be for us. And when it awakes, it is the same, but a third of our lives has gone by. Our perspective has narrowed. Our faith in magic, which makes magic possible, is worn off like the shine on a new pair of shoes after a hard day's walking. End, end quote. So that's my question, too. Like, it doesn't need to call them back. So why call us back? Why not just let us die? Because we nearly killed it. Because we frightened it, I think. Because it wants revenge. And now, now we no longer believe in Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, Hansel and Gretel, or the Troll Under the Bridge. It's ready for us. Come on back, it says. Come on back. Let us finish our business in dairy, end quote. So um, I guess that's King's answer to this, is that it did want them to come back eventually for revenge. And then, uh, and it's willing to risk it because it doesn't think they have the capacity to defeat it anymore. And then that works with the whole theme of the book, the child saving the adult. It still doesn't jive fully with some of the other things we get, like why they don't have children, their wealth and those things that seem to I mean no having not having children separates them from the childhood that 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 tracks but their wealth doesn't track why even have them leave dairy at all just have them stay there I don't know but that's it <laughs>
So eventually, uh, the, you know, Mike does call them, and we're and we're back to the the beginning of the book, in a sense. Um, what's left? Well, what's left is section five, the ritual of Chud. Two episodes, and half of that, half of the two hundred pages that are left in the book, are just getting in both timelines the losers into the sewers. It takes King that long to do that, and you think there's a lot left to do. And there is. There's confrontation in the sewers. There's getting out. There's um, the epilogue to the story. But King can't get to that yet. He still has to get our characters in both timelines into the sewer in the same time, you know, physically in the text of the book, right? Because he's, he's going to be flipping back and forth constantly because every advanced by the losers in 85 corresponds with a little bit more of memory being revealed it's being revealed to kind of in real time as they go down into the sewers um and just rereading the final chapters of this book i was struck by you know of that last 200 pages it's about 230 is left in my version almost half, it's like 110 of that or so is just getting them to the sewers not even the 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 the, the confrontation at the end. The ritual of Chud when it finally comes is really, really quick. Um, but that's okay. It's it's fine. It's just, that's what we're going to be talking about next time is those hundred pages so that get us to the sewers. Um, and anyways, from my perspective, we're all in climax at this point in the book, but it's, the, the bullseye is maybe the beginning of it. But it's, uh, you know, Everything has to get into place. Like so much of King's novels are just set up. We are getting all the pieces into the right place for the eucatastrophe or the you know the confrontation or the or the event. Right. Um, I've been reading a lot of King lately, and I see that again and again in his work. So, anyways, uh, I'll leave you. Uh, if you have any thoughts on any of these topics in this book, uh, let me know what you think. I, I think I'm happy with the answer King gives us in the fourth interlude for its motivations and then and then it just seems that it has a change of thoughts when he when it sees how powerful the losers still are and that's why henry bowers has to come in as sort of insurance against against the the losers um or uh bev's husband has to be kind of repurposed last minute um but anyways, uh, we'll talk all about that in the next episode, I'm sure. So um, that's it. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, please leave your comments and your thoughts below. Going See you next time. Down to lonesome town Where the broken heart stay Going down to lonesome town To cry troubles away in the town